5: Welcome, 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 welcome! Happy holidays, everyone, and uh, and and happy new year! Wow, Whew, I can't believe 2015 is already gone, <laughs> done, donezo. It's gone. Oh gone. my gosh! What are you? What are you gonna do? Your last day of of 2015. Um, sleep. Well, watch TV, chill. Come on, Fong. Drink I know, some wine. <laughs> I know there's got to be an adventurous bone in you oh no <laughs> about skydiving or that's too much i'm afraid of height <laughs> how about how about how about go out to a, a a bar or a lesbian bar and try to meet somebody uh no nah. i'm okay How about how about sign up for tinder and try to meet some lesbians on the internet Um, I'm not good with that. (laughs) I'm such a bad influence. You're not, you're not. You're just helping me out, figuring out stuff. (laughs) What are you going to do? What am I going to do? I'm going to ring in the new year with people I love. That's very simple. I don't want to be around anyone else except, you know, people who unconditionally love me. I just kind of feel like ending 2015 with such tragedies that the human uh, race has faced. I am... I'm so afraid. I'm so afraid all the time that that death is near or something horrible is going to happen. And so at the very end end of the day, if I had to spend my last day of life, Mm -hmm. I'd rather spend it with with, uh, people who absolutely unconditionally love me. There we go exactly how I feel <laughs> <laughs> alright let's get our program started as you know this holiday season we are producing a series of, of interviews from LGBT pioneers and in partnership with Open House a nonprofit organization that serves our LGBTQ senior community right here in the San Francisco Bay Area and I wanted to do this um, so that we can give exposure to the incredible work that some people have, have, have done and have contributed in our community and, and the fact that we should not ignore the issues that uh, will impact our aging community and so if you would like to make a tax-deductible donation today you can head to openhouse-sf.org to make the donation today today's program is brought to you by pacific fertility center when life needs a little encouragement pacific fertility center will be right by your side our guest today is Mary Midget, but uh, we will call her Midget because that is what she would like to be called. Uh, Midget, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I want to applaud you that. You have your own program. That's fantastic.
5: <laughs> you know, many years of hard work and persistence, which is probably something you uh, are aware of and, and have done all your life, um, has, has I guess, paid off. But there there, it could be a day when somebody says, you're done, Michelle. Um, but that would be the point why we all have to work together in order to preserve our community, right? Well, you know,
1: Michelle, at the age of 80, it's never about it's done. Mm-hmm. It's never done. Mm -hmm. You will just keep going. I will just keep going. I'm writing a column on aging, and my editor says, girl, keep it going. I tell there's no end to it.
5: Right right which thank you so much for having the will to continue because without people like you um you know some of us would live in ignorance <laughs> uh let's let's start the show off by talking about you and talking about your childhood i know that you uh you grew up in new york no i grew up in boston massachusetts ah boston and so what was life like growing up in boston for for midget uh, for Midget, uh,
1: it was fun. It was fun, yeah. I Midget is the Leo that doesn't let anything go past her. I mean, yeah. I had a jam time, what can I tell you? Yeah. I have no regrets. I have no regrets at all, young lady. Were
5: you, were you an active, spunky kid like you are as a senior?
1: I was an active, spunky kid. Uh, in fact, um, I was looking at some of the questions that, that was sent to us, mm-hmm. and um, it talks about coming out story. Are you going to get to that, or I should wait till you say all that?
5: Yeah, I'll, I'll get I'll get to it. I mean, I, I'm trying to ease us and our listeners into midget, and, you know, it's always good. It's like a first date, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so I want to know a little bit about you know what kind of kid you were, just to give us some context as to you know leading up to when you came out, because that might make us understand a little bit more. Um, So I, I, I think that what you're alluding to is the fact that you've always been incredibly courageous.
1: Yes. Yes. I have to agree with that. Um, I had three brothers and uh, they were very loving, very supportive of me. And I came out, I really didn't know I was coming out. I met a young lady. we,
5: hugged and rubbed, but Michelle, I didn't know what I was doing. You didn't know that you were hugging and rubbing? I mean, I knew I was hugging and rubbing, but I- <laughs>
2: Just
5: at <laughs> <felt> Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Quite no, but I will
1: tell you this, girlfriend. It done sure felt good.
5: Uh huh, uh huh. So, so let's talk about that. That's uh, we've got to that point of of coming out. I mean, you know, for some of us in the queer community, we've always known that we're different, we're special, uh, and even you know to articulate it, some of us knew we were gay when we were a young kid. Did you know?
1: Again, you know, Michelle, there was no word there was no word for us to relate to. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's just when I said the rubber dub dub, uh, (laughs) I knew it felt good.
5: Yeah.
2: Yeah. I
1: knew, yeah, it felt good. And um, fortunately enough, it felt good. And down the road, interestingly enough, my aunt uh, told me that, I was a lesbian at the age of five. Mm -hmm. You know the expression, your parents always know? Yeah. Yeah, but they're afraid to tell you. I think they're afraid to tell you because they know there would be some repercussions. Right. You know, as a youngster and how would society treat you and parents... Are not always there to save you.
5: Right, right. So let's fast forward to you, the point in which you're living openly as a queer woman. Um, what was what was that like? And what year was that?
1: I didn't live openly because I was in the army. Oh, and, uh, it was it was really interesting. You know, we talk about the witch hunt. Witch mm-hmm. hunt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had to go through those. They were really, really bad, but. I didn't let them affect me because I was a strong individual. And the sergeants, I mean, they would browbeat us lesbians. But we knew what time it was. We knew they wanted to sleep with us. But we just did not, you know, allow that to happen because we knew we could get put out. So as far as the coming out was concerned, I always knew I was a lesbian. Mm-hmm. So, there was never what you call a coming out process. I became very politically active when I came here to San Francisco.
5: Let's, we're going to get there. And I definitely want to talk about the, the long years of service you've given to our community. Um, but what made you want to join the Army? Freedom. Yeah,
1: mm-hmm. it was freedom. Uh, I had three brothers, uh, I was very overprotective. Which is overprotective, and I also read a um, article in Ebony magazine, and it showed how people lived. And I think, my God, people do really live like this. I mean, it was just degrading. It was awful. So that really is what pushed me to join the army to travel.
5: You know, I asked this, I I had done another interview in which an individual also had served in the uh, military during the 60s and 70s. And and now where we're at in 2015, the military, the government has a different relationship with gay and lesbian service members. Um, But I still find that, uh, you know, some... I guess, issues that the the military and the government face, uh, they're not always conducive to LGBT people. Uh, What are your thoughts today? And in looking back, um, are you proud of the military for for doing what they did? Well, when you say proud, you mean allowing the don't ask, don't tell? Yeah,
1: yeah. Because they haven't changed. Mm -hmm. It hasn't changed. I mean, if you come out, it's all over Mm hmm they'll say to you yeah it's okay but I'm sure many of them still get harassed I'm sure they do Mm hmm I mean that's my personal opinion I mean I know some people that are still in the service yeah I still think they get harassed I don't think nothing has changed
5: so let's fast forward to the you know to you getting to San Francisco um you left the army and and I mean any any reason why you chose San Francisco
1: Oh, I always wanted to come to San Francisco, oh, God, since I was in the Army. Uh-huh. Yeah, I was told that this was the place to rock and roll.
5: <laughs> and you got rocking and rolling. I mean, I mean, act, uh, to be active in the community, I mean, um, at least, uh, well, you know, what, w- I guess during the time that you came in San- to San Francisco, what year was that?
1: I came here in 1974, but I didn't get stationed here. So that was my sadness. Mm-hmm. I wanted to get stationed in San Francisco, but um, I got stationed in Fort Meade, Maryland, which was all right. It was okay. Yeah, because then I traveled a lot on the East Coast. Uh, and, um, yeah.
5: Yeah, and I mean, I wanted to bring up the fact that you came to San Francisco in the mid-'70s and a lot was happen- happening politically here in this city um, I guess what I wanted to ask was, well, what issues did you, were you passionate about that you felt that you needed to make an, in, an immediate impact when it came to the queer community?
1: I came here in 1974, and God, it was just wonderful. That's all I can say. It was wonderful. But my first political uh, act was I was a um, counselor, at Acceptance House, and I was the only black person on the board. And interestingly enough, there was a not there was not a lot of black visibility. So I took it upon myself. every chance that I got was to put myself out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, it started with uh, Nia which is a lesbian organization. We're going on 26 years. I was one of the co-founder of them. And uh, Bay Area, Black Lesbians and Gays, because there was no organization with black men and women.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, so, Mm -hmm. you know, I looked at that, and, um, God, there was a couple of others that I can't think of. And I just felt as though, because there was not a lot of, African-American visibility,
2: mm-hmm.
1: that I really need to be in the forefront. I really need to do that. And wonderful uh, experience. Wonderful experience.
5: I want to i, I want to ask a question. It may sound loaded, but uh, it's an honest one. And, you know, I, I want to know, I, and I want us to talk about it openly, but how were black lesbians treated in the mid-'70s um, in queer spaces? And not just black lesbians, but black people in general. Well,
3: for myself,
1: I, for me, because I was involved in a lot of black African-American um, organizations, I would hear uh, women say that there was a lot of issues uh, in the gay and lesbian community. Now, I know there was. I know there was. I mean, I didn't live in a community where uh, I wore blinders by no means. Mm -hmm. But I just knew we needed, we, men and women, needed to have our own space. When I lived in New York City, it was always black gay men and women together. Mm-hmm. When I came out here to San Francisco, and I don't want to, to sound negative, I just want to tell you the reality of it. No,
5: I, and, and I'm not, I don't mean to, to yeah, that's yeah, what yeah, I want to focus yeah. on. I want to be real because I feel yeah, like yeah. no one tells these stories authentically unless we do, right?
1: Yeah. And um, the white women, I mean, it just totally blew me out of the water. They hated the men. They literally hated the men. And that was very hard for me. And I think that was part of the reason why I wanted to be with my own, because I couldn't understand why a woman would just outright hate men. Because in my opinion, what did these gay guys do to you? I mean, they had just as many problems as we had. Mm. But that is what happened. That's what happened, and when things turned around, it's when the HIV ep- epidemic came into play,
5: I, I and I that's hear that.
1: when the women got together with the men, and it still was not about the um, the African-American men, because we were always there with the brothers. Mm-hmm. There was never no change of that, mm-hmm. none, none whatsoever, but... Uh, Michelle, it was terrible. Mm. It was terrible. I mean, I could not understand the insanity of it all. So many of my black friends, they would say to me, "Midget, why are you joining these white organizations? You know how these white people are. And what I would say to them is that I'm doing it because they need to learn. They need to learn that everybody It's okay. I said, and if we don't come forward, how are they going to know? Mm. And so I felt like it was something I needed to do.
5: Right. And I did
1: it, and I felt good
5: about it. Midget, hold on to that thought. We want to continue this discussion, but I've got to take a quick break, so don't go anywhere, okay? Yeah. The Michelle Meow Show continues right after this. Don't go away.
0: And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show.
5: Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. Uh, We're continuing our special program with Open House, a nonprofit organization right here in San Francisco that provides services for LGBT seniors. And so in an effort to give exposure to the issues that LGBT seniors face, um, we are conducting a series of interviews with LGBT pioneers. And so on the phone with us is Midget. And uh, Midget came here to San Francisco in 1974 and has been very active in the queer space, especially around African American men and women's organizations. So Midget, you know, I, I I I was asking you about the the environment of and treatment of of black lesbians or black gay men in the 70s, but um you know, has it changed? Do you feel that uh, it's more inclusive or do you think that we are at a point in 2015, especially especially this year in um, you know, this big Bigger discussion regarding racial inequality. Do you think that there's there's more attention to it, so therefore, um, we're at a uh, we're at a bubble in, in our own community. You know, that's a
1: hard question for me to answer, Michelle. I mean, it's mm-hmm. a hard question for me to answer honestly. Okay. Because I have been um, I have been out of the community, I would say, for the last ten years. And the only um, place that I go now is Nia, and Nia was started twenty six years ago.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And what the reason why it started is because we wanted to have a space of our own. So, in having that space of our own, that is the only way I have been able to uh, stay with my sisters. I I'm not it. looking at the outside now of what's going on. I do belong to an organization called OLAC, Older Lesbians Organized for Change. You have to be over 60 years old. And I'm enjoying that. I'm enjoying yeah. that because the women are older. They're looking at their racism. And it's wonderful because way back in the day for them, They didn't know many black people, gay and Mm -hmm. lesbians. So we're all now trying to get all this together and figure out how we can make it work for us now in our old age. Mm -hmm. And so every time we go to a retreat, we go to a retreat or we go to a conference, racism is always brought to the fold. And... I feel really proud of these women because right now they are willing, you know, to look at what it was like for them and what they did way back in the day. But in terms of 215, um, I'm just totally out of the loop
5: or it might it might feel that way um but your perspective matters and so i was going to ask the other the other side of it i mean what about uh aging in the san francisco bay area and the treatment of seniors um within our own community what what are your thoughts about that
1: okay when you uh, say that i'm okay i said i'm out of the loop let me retract that no i'm not out of the loop okay mm-hmm. this column i write for the western edition Mm -hmm. newspaper and i've been writing for them for nine years the last three columns have been on aging and so for me i continue to talk to every person that i can about aging and so when i'm with particular groups What I try to what I work at is trying to tell gays, lesbians, straight, black, Anglo, aging is nothing but a way of life. It's a number. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: It's only a number. I mean I will be eighty this year. I do not see me being out of the loop per se but continuing to be there to help uh, gays and lesbians. Now, I feel really honored because Michelle had asked me to speak. That's right. Yeah, Michelle at the Open House. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, she had asked me to speak for years on aging in different organizations. Right. And uh, I felt honored. Uh I felt honored, you know, that... And sometimes, you know, we forget that we're still in the loop. Mm
5: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally get that.
1: Yeah, because for 20 years, I spoke at San Francisco State on demystifying human sexuality. I was in New York City, and I saw this young student, and he said, Midget, you brought me out. He said, just from listening to you on that stage, feeling proud, and I was what...
5: What, maybe sixty. Hey, here's here's uh, I can actually um, contribute to that. You made me feel that way, even though I've been out since 19 years old. Uh, but the this year during San Francisco Pride, you were given an award, a Freedom Award, uh, for the work that you've done throughout the years in the, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I heard you speak at the the press conference, um, and it was so empowering and so uplifting because there were you know, things that you were saying that were so positive and, and also even talking about how, you know, you're still out there dating and doing things. It doesn't mean that you're, you can't do anything. I really appreciated that.
1: Well, you know, I'm writing uh, this column on aging, and what I'm talking about is aging and being displaced, Many people have been in relationships forever, and yet the column will start off by saying, are you, were you glued at the hip with this person? Because if you were glued at the hip with this person, when the person trans, transformed, trans, trans, then you are displaced. You are displaced. You are displaced as a gay, gay and lesbian, because maybe you were in the closet. So if you were in the closet, that means maybe you did not have a lot of gay and lesbian friends. Maybe you had all straight friends. So if you had all straight friends and you didn't talk about that you were gay and lesbian, this is something I put in my column, Michelle. We have to start looking at what is there for us as gays and lesbians now i don't go to open house because i haven't got there yet now when i say i haven't got there my life is so busy it's so fulfilling that i don't have time to sit down and play cards or bingo and whatever seniors do I'm not saying it's a bad thing, Michelle. Trust me, I'm not. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, girlfriend. I just ain't got there yet. Yeah. I haven't got there yet. And to get there, I think, is good because then you have a community. But right now, so many of us young people, especially like say young folks in their 40s and in their 50s. They're not planning for their senior years. They're glued at the hip with their relationships. And that's not the reality of the world. It's not the marriage. It's not the reality of the world. And that takes me into marriage equality. I think it's great. But you know why I think it's great? I think it's great because... If you've been with somebody a hundred years, at least now that other person's family can't come, and leave you in the streets.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's what I think.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Marriage equality—I think it's so wonderful. But I'm going to say something kind of negative. Okay. It's okay. Young folks are gonna get out there and do what the straight folks do. We all gonna be in love. Everything is great, 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 great. Then you go on and you're gonna adopt the kid, and next thing you know, same old shit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, get a divorce, go to court, and fight for the kid. I mean, that's real. <laughs> Shell, that's real. Oh wow, Midget- because This is what me and my friends talk about. Yeah.
5: Medjit, thank you so much for your honesty and your your time. I've got time for one more question as we're winding down here. Um, What are you most proud of in terms of your accomplishments and uh, the life that you've lived thus far?
1: I I feel like I have accomplished visibility in the gay and lesbian community. I'm leaving a heritage.
2: You sure are.
1: And that's what I feel— Just saying this, I feel it. Of course, it's also my ego too, but I feel it.
5: (laughs) Midget, thank you so much again for joining us here on the program for and uh, for being out there and for all that you've done. Uh, You're a hero to me, and I just love you.
1: I love you too, Michelle. Thank you. Thanks so much. New Year.
5: Yes, you got it. Happy New Year. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll continue right after this with another interview. So don't go away. you
0: Um, just to entertain people and so it seems like that works you know I would say to young kids you know just kind of form your own identity and uh, and you know don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties we have that for you. Spotlight on success and achievement Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now, here's your host, Michelle Miao.
5: Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. And uh, we're continuing our special program in partnership with Open House Open House is a nonprofit organization right here in San Francisco that provides services and resources to the LGBTQ senior community. So uh, in an effort to expose and highlight issues that impact LGBTQ seniors and during this holiday season, I wanted to make sure that we don't forget our LGBTQ pioneers. That is the reason why we've been interviewing uh, fascinating people who have contributed to our community, the LGBTQ community. But if you'd like to take it a step further and support uh, the cause support the organization that provides the actual resources, Open House, you should head to openhouse-sf.org and make a tax-deductible donation right now. Uh, but for me, right now, I think we're going to start the uh, the next interview. And I'm very, very, very excited to have this person on our program because I think that uh, he might be the only person from the leather and kink community that uh, we've had on the program during this holiday season uh, to talk about, you know, I think, I hope, he'll be open to uh, sex and leather history. So let's welcome Race Bannon to the program. Race, thanks so much for being with us.
3: Thank you for having me. Much appreciated.
5: I'm on your website right now, Bannon.com, and reading your very lengthy and extensive bio. And I just mentioned I'm very excited to have uh, someone represent the leather kink and uh, you know sex liberation community. Let's start by asking you a very general question that we've asked all of our interviewees, and that is, where did you grow up, and uh, and what was it like being you know young little race?
3: Um, I grew up in Chicago. I was born in the city, raised in the southern suburbs, and then at some point moved back into the city. Um, I was an only child, um, mostly raised by my father, who was one of the most remarkable men who ever walked the face of the earth. And um, I attribute my dad for being who I am today, quite frankly.
5: That is wonderful.
3: And um, so, yeah. From Chicago.
5: All right, awesome. Well, welcome. Um, well, so what year was it that you said you moved to San Francisco?
3: I moved to San Francisco in 1994 from Los Angeles. I had been in LA for 14 years before that.
5: So I'm sure then, you know, your work in the leather and uh, the sex and relationships uh, community stems back prior to you coming to San Francisco, right?
3: Yeah, I, I was very active in. Um, what we refer to back then, back when the earth was cooling, is the gay rights movement in Chicago. Um, it, or, I was one of the main organizers of the Anita Bryant um, protests. And, oh. um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, we had 5,000 people marching in Chicago um, to protest Anita Bryant. So I've uh, been very involved in um, LGBT issues from the beginning, um, Chicago, and then briefly I lived in New York City, Manhattan, for a while. And then the sexuality and the leather and the kink uh, work uh, began really in earnest when I moved to Los Angeles in
5: 1980. Okay, so I'm going to take it and I'm going to dumb it down. Uh, We've got some new listeners here and there've been a lot of discussions and questions around, you know, the leather community and the relationship within the LGBTQI community. And for some reason, there are New, younger, I guess, queers who uh, may not have that connection. So if you will, we've got incre- uh, an incredible resource in you today. Take us down the, the history line in, in terms of leather. Um, explain to us, you know, as far as being a member of the leather community, why the leather community is absolutely a, a part of the LGBTQI community.
3: The leather, The, the term leather community really stemmed from um, the gay men and women and lesbians um, leather community um, back in the day. Um, it has since sort of become expanded to actually include um, people of all genders and all orientations and a whole number of proclivities beyond what was originally thought of as leather. Um, so it, but it's, orig- its origins certainly stem um, primarily from the dense urban, um, gay male, mostly culture. Um, and they've been an integral part of the overall LGBT community from the beginning um, in terms of uh, simply being a very specifically demarcated demographic. They were amongst the very first in terms of aggressive fundraising. Um, Certainly when the HIV crisis happened, it was Mm -hmm. the community that seemed to jump on board uh, very, very quickly. Um, and aggressively. Um, so it, it's this long history of sexual mavericks and erotic rebels that have decided to have sex their own way, but, and also to erotically identify their own way. They like identifying with that bit of rebel status and um, doing things their own way, and it becomes a kind of identification as much as it is a sexuality.
5: This is going to sound extremely ignorant, but uh, you know, is the leather kink community down in Los Angeles, uh, especially in the 80s, you know, was it different than the leather kink community in San Francisco in the 80s? Um,
3: not ignorant at all. A question is actually, <laughs> it's actually a, a really good question. Um, they were somewhat similar, actually. I think West Coast leather, uh, back then we didn't really use the word kink. Mm-hmm. That is a relatively new term because it probably more accurately describes what's going on than leather does in many instances. Um, but no, they were, they were actually somewhat similar. Certainly, um, the gay men's and lesbians uh, scene was very similar uh, back then to the San Francisco scene, maybe a little bit more out and open in San Francisco, simply because it is San Francisco. But uh, it had the West Coast aesthetic, the West Coast feel. Um, the West coast openness uh, style look culture were all pretty similar actually
5: What made you want to um, I guess you know become an activist in the leather community? was it really you know you mentioned fundraising, you mentioned being the, you know pretty much the uh, the first people to mobilize and, and organize to to raise funds for the community, especially during a time of crisis. What was it?
3: Um For me personally, uh, I was always attracted to the men's leather scene, the leather scene generally eventually um, from the time I came out, I was sneaking into men's leather bars in Chicago underage uh, at a you know I, it was immediately what I gravitated to,
2: mm-hmm. so the
3: moment i came out in the sense that I was going to bars, I was trying to inject myself into the, the the gay male culture of the time. I immediately was drawn to both the look and aesthetic and feel and sexuality of men, but also to the atmosphere. I, I would spend most of my young knights in (laughs) in leather bars in the beginning. (laughs) So on a visceral personal level, it always had a strong attraction for me. The other thing is that, and I'll go back to my father, who always said, be yourself and be proud Mm -hmm. of who you are. Um, And I made a decision very early on that I would not be closeted in any way, and that included my leather and kink. So all my jobs in corporate life, regular life, whatever – uh, I've been very out, and part of being out like that means that you then are some someone that sometimes people turn to because you're, especially back then, we're talking late 70s, early 80s, you're living a pre- pretty out life, and most people are not.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and so I felt it, you know, it was incumbent on me to actually do something about the acceptance of leather, the acceptance of kink, educating both our own ranks and people on the outside um, in ways that I felt were important and were lacking at the time, uh, now I think we have a plethora of such education and, uh, and information campaigns right. but but back then, not so much.
5: You know, for me, I I obviously I I wasn't old enough to (laughs) be a part of the leather community in the 80s and uh, wasn't aware of even my own sexuality at the time. Um, So when I when I read, you know, LGBT history that's inclusive of the leather community, um, I really I really find that those who did work in this space who were activists uh, in the leather community were extremely courageous because you really had to fight Uh, So many, so many different things like, you know, the government policies and social perspectives of not just gay people, but gay people who wanted to be sexually liberated, who just, uh, you know, excuse my French, but just didn't give a crap shit (laughs) about, um, you know, people thinking that uh, monogamous relationships made you a good person. Did you did you ever feel like you were. Like you know, way too shocking, too weird, too different to fit in society.
3: Um, personally, no. Um, I certainly, having been an integral part of a lot of LGBT activism early on, I was fully aware that leather men and women, drag queens, witch dykes, I could oh, there's a long list, were typically pushed to the back of the bus in terms of the main civil rights discourse, and so not only were we fighting sometimes to simply have general societal acceptance, but even within our our own LGBT ranks, there were many times where our voices were squelched, Mm -hmm. and that has thankfully changed quite a bit, but um, back then, it was very difficult to be an LGBT activist and gay rights activist at the time um, and be a leather man, a drag queen. Right. et cetera, because you were definitely ostracized from the main discussions because it was deemed that, you know, you were not an acceptable representation of who we are.
5: Right. And I'm going to follow up to that when you're not just a member of the leather community, but you're outspoken and talking about, you know, sexual freedom and the freedom to not, like I mentioned earlier, you know, it's not really always about one partner or being ashamed that you only have sex in the traditional way or... <laughs> you know, for procreation reasons or something. What I'm trying to get at is the the fact that, uh, you know, I wanted to hear more in terms of your opinion, your feelings, your experience in being able to articulate that sexual freedom, whether it's multiple partners or a different way of having sex that society deems okay.
3: I think one of the foundations of leather and kink and um, the alternative sex and relationship movement um, is the, the main point of self-determination. That, that, that's kind of the, the, whether it's our sexuality, whether it's our relationships, whatever, that is the overriding universal principle, if you will, that every human being has a right to self-determination. And the logical thinking when you embrace that in its entirety is that that applies to your sexuality and your relationships as well. So, right from the get go, it never felt correct to me that there was a one true way for anything. I'm a big believer in diversity. If you look at nature, everything about nature is diverse, from snowflakes to flowers to whatever. And there's no reason that human beings and the sexualities and the relationships that they embrace shouldn't be just as unique. So, I have never followed this sort of one true wayism for anything in, regarding sexuality or relationships. I just don't think it applies. Mm-hmm. I think we have cultural norms that develop, but they're nothing more than cultural norms. That doesn't mean that, that they are the right way. They're just the cultural way things have developed. So I do think that we are reaching a time... I mean, look at the, the, the uptick in the coverage of polyamory, for example. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, it's everywhere. Um, and if you actually look at the, the, the money that's being granted research, in social um, social science research projects, there's a lot of money being devoted to polyamory issues right now. And that's because people are starting to embrace this idea that you can go beyond the cultural norms, embrace your individuality, embrace your uniqueness, sexuality, relationship-wise. And that's kind of always been my my mantra.
5: I love it. I love it.
3: when I was younger, it just was kind of always my mantra.
5: And thank you. And thank you for that, because it's people like you, you know, paved the way, I think, for what you said um, in in terms of this society being a little bit more open uh, to sex, sex issues, relationships and understanding that more and not just connecting that with something like religion. Um, We're going to take a quick break right here. But when we come back, Race, I want to I want to talk to you about your thoughts in terms of where the community's at today. So stay with us. Sure. The Michelle Miel Show continues right after this. Don't go away.
0: And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show.
5: Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. We are continuing our special partnership with Open House, a nonprofit organization right here in San Francisco that provides resources to LGBTQ seniors. Uh, right here on the show, we're producing a series of interviews with fascinating LGBTQ pioneers in an effort To let you know that you should never forget uh, those who came before us, who have contributed so much to our community and who continue to do uh, a lot of that heavy lifting in our fight for equality. So our guest today is Race Bannon and I'm having a great time Uh, talking to Race, especially about leather history and and the leather community. So, Race, you know, I mentioned right before the break that I wanted to talk to you about where the leather community is at today. How has the community changed since the 70s and 80s?
3: Quite significantly, actually. Uh, I think that a number of things have taken place. First, uh, the term leather itself has become more of an umbrella term for a whole lot of styles of sexualities and erotic identities that don't necessarily look and feel and act like leather did traditionally in the 70s and 80s. So it's become more of a a catch-all term than it is a specific identifier of you are physically wearing leather. Um, It has uh, broadened and uh, really moved beyond just, well, it's, it's a uh, there have always been kinky people of all orientations and <laughs> genders. but
5: That's for sure. <laughs>
3: yeah, without a doubt. But, <laughs> but the merging of them into sort of a single unified culture is a relatively new phenomenon that really didn't start taking place until the early 90s. Um, some call it the pansexualization of the scene. Some don't like that term. Um, but it's it sort of become a blended scene. And right now I think what the scene is struggling with is, that, is this... This unified group of people that share this commonality, but at the same time, each group within that has a different style, a different set of subset cultural norms, a different way of being sexual, and a different way of using their erotic erotic identities in their lives. And it's become kind of internal push-and-pull struggle about, well, how do we do the things together that we want to do together, but at the same time allow gay men, heterosexuals, lesbians, bisexuals, people of more fluid genders, whatever it might be, and people in different kinds of sexualities and styles have their own places, their own spaces, mm-hmm. their own identities, separate and apart from the unified whole, so that they can really be themselves truly while also working together with other people. It's a really, it's a difficult place to be, but that's kind of where we're at right now.
5: Thank you for saying that, because, I mean... You know, I was going to bring that up when you uh, attend Folsom Street Fair. Um, you know, it's it's interesting because it, you, for some people, they still think that you're going to run into just gay men, and that's really not the case today. Um, I wanted to ask you know specifically in in terms of the leather community and the relationship it has with the LGBTQ community. Uh, I know that you had just explained that the leather community is has grown to include you know, a diversity of people, uh, but specifically within the LGBTQ community, do you think that the relationship has changed, like, you know, in terms of treatment, in terms of exposure, um, and uh, even, you know, events that we work on together that that overlap?
3: I think it's changed. I think uh, certainly in the major urban areas in um, the United States, you are seeing a higher level of acceptance of leather and kink folk. And I tend to use that term now, leather and kink, because it seems to be more inclusive because some are using one or the other, so I tend to use both together. Um, So I think you're seeing a higher level of acceptance. There's certainly a lot more information that people have about the leather and kink world that they did not have once upon a time. It's certainly more public. It's more out. Um, It's kind of interesting because it's at the same time when a lot of people in their day-to-day don't necessarily dress <laughs> the mm-hmm. way they once might have if you you know saw Castro Street in the 70s and 80s there were lots of people walking up and down in leather. You don't see that so much today. Mm-hmm. It tends to be more of an event-driven thing. But, um, but certainly the level of acceptance is much higher, and the greater LGBT community, when they are looking to um, recruit people for projects and events and important activism movements, they do now, for the most part, reach out to the leather and King community automatically, whereas once upon a time we were probably an afterthought.
2: Mm-hmm. So, I, I,
5: what about what about uh, you know post marriage equality and this whole uh, you know few of us, especially those who live in a city like San Francisco. Um, who are working these corporate jobs now. And, uh, you know, so we probably own a few more pairs of khakis or slacks than we used to. <laughs> but, like, what are your thoughts about the, that, uh, you know, assimilation into mainstream? Um, do you feel like we're losing a little bit of our gay culture? I, I know that's probably a loaded language, but I just wanted to hear uh, your uh, thoughts. Uh,
3: uh, yes, I do think we are. Uh, I am also not so naive as to think that that was probably not going to happen as a result. Mm -hmm. Um, So I do think we are losing a bit of gay culture, LGBT culture that we did have before. I am still struggling with if on balance, that's all a good thing. I happen to be one of the people that was a little neutral on the same-sex marriage issue. And part of that is my own personal bias, and I fully cop to it, is that I'm not a... Jumping up and down fan of the, the institution of marriage to begin with. I think mm-hmm. it might be an outdated paradigm that we need to rethink. Um, but with that said, I think it was an extremely important milestone in LGBT rights, and I, and, I, and I fully support it from that standpoint. But we are starting to see, even in my own leather and king culture, a normalization. Um, you know, you hear the term heteronormativity a lot. Um, but you do see some of that happening, and I think those of us, especially of my age, and since you're interviewing a lot of people who are older, um, do kind of pine for that era of when we we felt a little more unique mm-hmm. than, we felt, yeah. than we feel today, yeah. and I do think we feel like something is missing, but I try not to be this overly negative, you know, grandpa-get-off-my-lawn type of person, <laughs> um, but... But we do, I do think many of us feel that we were losing a little something.
5: You know, and, and I'm not asking because I have my own personal motives or anything like that, but because I think that especially the younger generation or those who are transplants of San Francisco and didn't necessarily or don't necessarily know, you know, the history so much, that um, like for you, for, for someone who's contributed so much to the leather community, to the HIV-AIDS community and organizing and fundraising, to all these communities that... Um, are very important to to us today. I, I wanted to for you to articulate, you know, how the changes have impacted you and how you feel about it.
3: Um,
5: I mean, even even like the bars are different. Even obviously, we've been talking about it. The Castro's is different. Uh, our perceptions different. Uh, even our pride celebrations.
3: Everything is different. Yeah. And frankly, I. I I am someone who believes change is the norm. I do not believe that we can ever stand still. If you stand still, you stagnate. So I am not someone who says it should always have been the way it was. Uh, But it is true in terms of, certainly from a a leather and, and kink perspective, our public spaces are disappearing. We don't have dedicated bars to ourselves anymore, really. Um, they simply don't exist. So we have a very hard time gathering and communing in spaces. Uh, you know, it's much more difficult than it once was. We have to sort of consciously create events and spaces and places to go, rather than to automatically have them there for us. So yeah, that, it, I miss that. I I, I do miss. Uh, I do miss. I'll be honest. A hyper gay culture and environment. I just do. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the more blended kind of accepting environment is great, and absolutely it's important. Mm-hmm. But I'd be lying if I said I don't kind of, you know, miss watching yeah. guys on Castro Street cruising each other.
2: And, <laughs> uh, yeah,
3: exactly. No,
5: right. You're, you're you're right. But but do you ever think about how that will continue to impact you as you age in, in the, uh, you know, the dwindling of the I think- queer spaces and things like that? Yeah, I, I've thought
3: a lot about it because I do a lot of community building stuff here in San Francisco and nationally, and it's something I think about all the time, and I think what we are now moving into is an era of what what I call conscious community. In other words, we had a community built into the, the LGBT community around bars and a lot of um, sort of those built-in social mechanisms. We don't have those so much today, mm-hmm. and um, yes, I know there's the whole online hookup and meet thing, but... But I think what we really need to do is start giving some serious think time to how do we consciously create places where we commune face-to-face, how do we consciously decide that we are going to get together and be this subculture that we are, and not just go off into the hinterlands and blend in, which I think is what many people assume we're going to do. I think like people, like-minded people, similar people, do like communing together, and there's tremendous power in that. And I would really not like to see the LGBT community as a whole just blend into the general population and disappear. I Mm. think there's great value in having an actual culture that we maintain and, and, and help thrive, while at the same time integrating into the greater culture in ways that we've never been able to do before. I think we can have both, but I think many people bemoan the loss of our spaces, our bars, and just bemoan them and don't give any thought to, well, what do we do next? I think the next, the next phase is this conscious effort to bring ourselves together and to create mechanisms, projects, spaces, whatever it might be, to make sure that we maintain that culture and that com- those commonalities and, and the tribe feel, for lack of a better term, um, while at the same time enjoying the benefits that we have of being able to be more blended into general culture.
5: We're winding down on time, but uh, I have a, a pretty important question. Do you think that there's enough leather history out there so that um, those who didn't you know who, who are coming new to the scene uh, that, that they will be able to be concerned and preserve you know the, the reason why we have leather in, in the first place in the first place?
3: I'll keep it brief. Um, yes, there is plenty of history there's also a lot of false history. And herein lies the dilemma. If you go to the Leather Archives and Museums, you go to our own um, um, uh, museums here, you go to the One One Archives at USC in Southern California, there's a plethora of leather and kink history out there. There's also a lot of um, good books. There's a lot of workshops. There's a lot of podcasts. You name it, there's a lot out there. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there is this mythological thinking that there was this perfect era of leather, mostly centered in San Francisco in the urban areas, when all leather men and leather folk were following this this code, this this way of being, and they all looked the same, and they all acted the same, and they they had this kind of um, very codified life. And unfortunately, that survives, it's often referred to as old guard in, in leather culture, and... of it is mythology and only a tiny bit of it is is fact, yet it seems to thrive in our community and it almost infects young people who they feel like they're less than because they don't live up to this mythology. So, yes, there's plenty of history, but there is some false history that I really hope we can blunt so that the younger people coming up create their own leather and king culture and don't try to just copycat something that really didn't exist
2: anymore.
5: Race, thank you so much for your time here on the program. And uh, really, I I just thank you so much for all that you've done and continue to do.
3: And I say the same to you. Thank you so much for this program and all that you do as well.
5: Happy holidays. You too. That's it. That's the show. Hope you enjoyed it. Again, if you'd like to make a tax deductible donation to Open House, please visit openhouse-sf.org. Happy holidays, everyone. Thank you so much for supporting this program.